for mortals the podcast that says life is too damn short to spend your time and attention worrying about your food choices so let's take a deep breath and then join us two registered dietitians and friends as we explore the world of nutrition with a special focus on cultivating a healthy and peaceful relationship with food my name is matt Priven, and i am joined as always by my co-host and the best dietitian on planet earth jen Baum. hey jen hey matt And just a super quick reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a nice review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Always helps to get us into the ears of other listeners that may enjoy the show. And if you have any ideas for the show, we have an email, nutritionformortals at gmail.com. And we love hearing from you all. Yes. So Jen, what are we covering today? Yeah, so today we are going to be talking about diet soda, and we're going to be really focused on a lot of the health claims or health risks that are often tied to diet soda intake. Great. I think that's a really valuable topic. And, you know, I I would imagine there's so many ways we could approach this. I mean, diet soda, it's got the word diet right in the title. And as, you know, two practitioners of nutrition who are pretty anti-diet for weight loss, you know, we could talk about the fact that this is a product marketed on the idea of dieting and is held up as a contrast to traditional soda because of its calorie content or lack of calorie content. We could talk about the recent WHO guidelines recommending that diet sodas are not used in weight management efforts, but we're not really focused on that today, right? We're talking about is diet soda harmful? Is it dangerous? Do you need to worry about it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we had to pick a lane and this could be one that we talk about again down the line. We could have like a diet soda part two, but at least for today, we're really going to be focused on like, is diet soda bad for you? Should you be worried about it? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's a drink where yes, it's got the word diet in the title, but a lot of people aren't thinking about that anymore. They just have their drink that they like. They like diet Coke. It's a flavor they enjoy and they want to drink it, but do they need to worry about it? Exactly. So are you a diet soda person? Do you drink diet soda? No, I'm not. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Any, any particular reason why or why not? I enjoy soda. And I have special times where I really enjoy soda. I'm thinking like a root beer float on a hot summer day. Mm -hmm. I like a, um, you know, Mexican imported Coca-Cola in the glass bottle Mm -hmm. with some Al Pastor tacos. Mm -hmm. However, I just prefer the classics. I prefer the classics here, but I have a lot of love for my diet soda people out there. So I'm excited to talk about this. What about you? Yeah, I'm not like a super diet soda person. I just, I'm not like in love with the taste of it. I have like other fizzy beverages that I really like and enjoy. Like I'm a diehard kombucha person for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Also like a huge fan of the um, grapefruit spindrift. Like I drink that stuff nonstop. Yep. But I just, I've never like loved the taste of diet soda. Although I will tell you, I definitely enjoy Sprite Zero from the fountain if I'm at the movie theater, because I kind of love that with popcorn. So that is like one exception where I'm like, mm, diet Sprite or like Sprite Zero and popcorn with a good movie. That's that's my jam. Awesome. Uh, I'm very excited that we are doing this episode today because since we started this podcast, I got a request from a very specific individual, my freshman college roommate and longtime 
buddy, Jordan Benkov, shout out, Ooh, who shout was out. saying, do a diet soda episode. I love Diet Coke, but I'm kind of paranoid. I'm giving myself Alzheimer's and cancer the entire time, every, every time I have one. So please cover this and, and relieve some of my anxiety. So let's get into it. Matt, when I asked you, we were kind of chit-chatting about this episode and what it was going to look like. And when I asked you what you thought the very first diet soda was, what did you say? I said tab. Yeah. Is that right? No, that's wrong. And I think <laughs> I think that tab, which is um, made by Coca-Cola, would probably be what most people assume is the very first diet soda. But actually there was an earlier diet soda. The very first diet soda that was invented is actually something called NoCal. And NoCal was developed by a man named Hyman Kirsch in 1952. I think that people listening probably know by now that I absolutely love nutrition history. And in particular, I love vintage food and beverage ads. And so so for that reason, and that reason alone, we are going to play a 1952 NoCal ad. So let's go ahead and take a listen. There's a party in every bottle of NoCal. Nothing to it but a flavor. A great party in every bottle of NoCal. Eleven hearty flavors. Like for the party flavors. There's a party in every bottle of NoCal. No-cal. Yes, there's a party in every bottle of NoCal. The first, the finest sugar-free soft drink. Now, better than ever, bubbling over with 11 of the breeziest, liveliest flavors. From ginger ale and lemon to black cherry and cola. Quality flavors that tickle your taste, yet add nothing to your waist. All in no-deposit, no-return bottles. Daytime, nighttime, getting grown-up time. There's a party in every bottle of NoCal. Wow, that's such a great ad. What a classic voice. I love how that guy entered with, yes. I know, <laughs> I know. That's awesome. I know, and if you could see the visual, like everyone's dancing, everyone's like holding bottles of NoCal. I mean, it's like classic 1950s. Amazing. So Hyman Kirsch, who invented NoCal, was actually a pretty interesting guy. He was a immigrant that came to the U.S. from Russia in 1903. Um, and in 1904, only a year after arriving in the U.S., Kirsch actually went into the soft drink business. He had, I guess, a tiny little store in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. And from this little store, he distributed ginger ale and other sodas by horse and buggy making like around 25 cases of handmade soda a day and selling it. And so he was really like entrepreneurial and he did really well. So he grew his business and became something of a big name in the beverage industry, particularly like in the soda industry. And Kirsch also became a real philanthropist. And one of his philanthropic projects was to found what was then known as the Jewish Sanitarium for Chronic Diseases, which was, you know, essentially a hospital for those with chronic conditions. And he founded this hospital in the late 1930s. And Kirsch's motivation behind the creation of the very first diet soda actually came from his observations of walking around the hospital and realizing that there were no sugar-free beverages available for the diabetics that were staying at the hospital at the time or any sugar-free beverages for those with like cardiovascular disease. And he essentially kind of capitalized on this lack, this kind of hole in the market that he saw. And he decided that he wanted to create a diet soda so that diabetics particularly could enjoy soda without the sugar content. Yeah, okay. I see where his intentions were at. It's a noble beginning for diet soda. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that when diet sodas were first created, they were actually often placed in the -the over-the-counter medicine section of grocery stores because they were essentially viewed as like a medical intervention for diabetics and people with like chronic heart disease. And so this was really seen as something that people with chronic conditions should be utilizing for their health. Gotcha. So, So when does it take off and when does diet soda take over? Yeah, and I think it's probably going to come as no surprise to people listening that even though NoCal was kind of started or invented to try to help individuals with chronic conditions, it was definitely capitalized on by the diet and weight loss industry. So NoCal immediately became very popular with dieters, and it actually began being marketed particularly to women as a way of helping them to lose weight. And so, you know, started with kind of very good, pure intentions, and then like many products in the world of nutrition, the diet industry grabbed a hold of it and kind of ran with it. Mm, Okay, gotcha. So when they made this diet soda, I mean, it's easy enough to make soda, right? It's got some some flavors, some botanicals in it maybe, and then you put sugar in it. But how did he make the first diet soda? Because you have to make it sweet somehow. Yeah. And so this is when we're going to start to talk about non-nutritive sweeteners. And I think it's really important to say that the the sweetener that Hyman Kirsch used in NoCal was something called cyclamate. And we've got to talk about cyclamate because it's going to be important in our conversation later when we start to talk about diet soda and risk of cancer. Cyclamate is a non-nutritive sweetener, and it was actually discovered by a graduate student in 1937. Um, This is actually a really interesting kind of historical story. I guess this grad student was smoking a cigarette after he was in his lab, and he tasted something sweet on his cigarette. And Mm. he kind of went around the lab tasting things and discovered that (laughs) one of the substances he had kind of been working with was like super sweet, and that was cyclamate. A nondescript white powder on his desk in the lab, and he's just like licking all the powders, just going, which one of these things is sweet? Exactly, exactly. You have to love like the the 30s and 40s for like, just gonna, we're going to taste things in a lab and kind of see what happens. But that's what he did, and that's how cyclamate was discovered. And cyclamate is a, is a non-nutritive sweetener. It's about 30 times as sweet as like regular table sugar. But like all non-nutritive sweeteners, it's not metabolized or broken down by the body. So it's not not a source of energy or calories. And once cyclamate was discovered, it began being used in lots of different products. So things like canned fruit, candy, salad dressing. In the 1950s and 60s, it was pretty pretty ubiquitous in terms of the non-nutritive sweetener that was very popular. And this was what Hyman Kirsch used to sweeten NoCal. Jen, can we start a bicycle club and call ourselves the Cyclomates? <laughs> yes, Matt. Yes, we can, we can do that. We can talk about that after the show. All right. All right we'll get back to me on that. Um, so I think it, the other thing it's definitely worth saying is that, like, like I mentioned earlier, so NoCal comes and hits the market in 1952. But right after that, as soon as kind of like the world sees how popular diet soda is, there are a ton of companies scrambling to enter the like the no calorie soda market. Uh, there's a drink called Diet Right Cola that was introduced by the Royal Crown Cola Company in 1958. And then of course, Coca-Cola is scrambling to get a piece of the action. And they actually come out with Tab in 1963. So Tab is really like the kind of most, I feel like, iconic diet soda that people know about, but it was kind of like the third or fourth to become popular in the 1950s and 60s. 
Gotcha. They had some great branding though. I mean, that tab can is pretty epic. Oh yeah. And it's so iconic. So iconic. So now we're in the late 1950s. And the other thing that happens right around this same time is the enactment of the 1958 Food Additives Amendment. And this is going to be really important because non-nutritive sweeteners are food additives. They're considered food additives. And the 1958 Food Additives Amendment was essentially an amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act That's the kind of big law that allows the FDA to oversee the safety of foods, among other things. And the 1958 Food Additives Amendment really changed the rules under which food additives were regulated. So up until 1958, a substance added to a food was essentially just presumed safe until someone, like usually the government, could prove it otherwise. But after 1958, the FDA had to approve the safety of a food additive before it could be added to a food or to a beverage. And like, I think it's worth just pausing here for a second, just recognizing like how food additives and food additive regulation was essentially the wild, wild west before 1958. Like companies could just add stuff to food without really having to prove they were safe. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. And unfortunately, our supplement industry is still the Wild West, but I'm glad at least what goes into our food has some oversight. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last thing to say about this 1958 change in regulation was that as part of the 1958 Food Additives Act, it required the FDA to ban food additives, which were found to cause or induce cancer in humans or in animals. And this is the aspect of the law that's going to become really important as we continue our discussion, particularly of diet soda and risk of cancer. So now let's move into the 1960s. I want to kind of paint a picture here. So early 1960s, the diet soda industry is booming. Food additives are more regulated, thank goodness. And everything is all well and good in the world of diet soda until 1969. So in 1969, there is an FDA scientist. Her name is Jacqueline Verrett. And she appears on the NBC Nightly News. Now, we can kind of imagine everyone's watching the news in the 60s, right? Like the Nightly News is like the place to get information. And this FDA scientist comes on the Nightly News and she shares with the world that chicken embryos injected with cyclamates suffer from severe birth defects. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Yeah. And... She actually has pictures of the deformed birds to back up her claim, and she shows them on national television. So you can kind of imagine what a powerful effect this has. Yeah, nothing like a picture of a messed up chicken embryo to scare everybody. Absolutely. So this causes panic, and I need to do like one more aside and pause here and just recognize the fact that most humans don't get their artificial sweeteners by way of like in the womb injections. And I think actually maybe Jacqueline Verrett made that same point, but of course it's too late at this point. There's this kind of widespread panic that's happening around cyclamate particularly, and then around diet soda as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's pretty scary. She must've felt like it was her duty to share this information in case there are some ill effects of cyclamates, but it was presented in a way that was was pretty scary for people to take in when they were sitting there on their couch drinking their no-cal. Exactly, exactly. So Jacqueline Vera goes on TV. This starts kind of like a, a, a big panic. And then a few days later, the manufacturer of cyclamates, Abbott Laboratories, 
releases a study showing that 8 out of 80 rats fed a mixture of saccharin and cyclamate developed bladder tumors. And so Mm. this study, combined with Verrett's appearance on the nightly news, this like fuels the fire. And suddenly there's this narrative created that diet soda or cyclamate sweetened soda causes birth defects and cancer. And once this happens, the FDA went on to ban cyclamates from being used in food or beverages like diet soda because, as we just learned, the 1958 Food Additive Amendment requires the FDA to ban food additives which are found to cause or induce cancer in humans or animals. So you said the the organization releasing that study was Abbott Laboratories. That's right. As in Abbott, you know, the maker of... Ensure and a, a lot of the sort of medical uh, foods that we have today. I mean, a huge company that has a, a ton of food products as well as um, devices and instruments in hospitals. So that's a pretty big organization. It makes me think, you know, was there some kind of competing financial interest that they had here with, uh, you know, getting rid of the the big players in the diet soda market? But that's just a little conspiracy theory I'm thinking up here while you're talking. Yeah, it would be a very interesting thing to explore further. You know, we talked about rat studies when we did our sugar episode. And so we have to dig into this now infamous rat study that essentially started or created this idea that diet soda or non-nutritive sweeteners may increase risk of cancer. So Abbott Laboratories finds that eight out of these 80 rats that are fed a mixture of saccharin and cyclamates, um, saccharin is just another non-nutritive sweetener, developed bladder tumors. Now, these animals were fed huge levels of cyclamate every day for two years solid, um, way more than a human would probably ever consume in a day. But more importantly about this study is that this study has never been replicated. So since 1969, there have been a huge amount of studies in which animals were fed similar levels of cyclamate for their entire lives, and none has ever indicated that the sweetener increases risk of cancer. So there's been a lot of questions around like why they saw what they saw in this study, and I'm definitely not implying that anything nefarious was going on, but it's just never been able to be reproduced. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and in fact, so much research contradicted that initial 1969 rat study that in 1984, the Cancer Assessment Committee of the FDA came out with the following statement, and this is a quote. The collective weight of the many experiments indicates that cyclamate is not carcinogenic, so not cancer-causing, and the results of the 1969 study that led to the banning of cyclamate are not repeatable and not explicable. And the following year, the National Academy of Science added that the totality of the evidence from the studies in animals did not indicate that cyclamate by itself was carcinogenic. So you have lots of organizations coming out, you know, we're, what, 20 years later or so, saying that, like, yeah, no study has ever reproduced these results, and cyclamate does not appear to cause cancer or increase risk of developing cancer. So I want to stop here because this Abbott Laboratories rat or animal study is a classic example of what I'd call the one study phenomenon. This is when literally one study has the impact to completely change the narrative around a food or ingredient or an additive. And this is super dangerous because the truth is that one study can never provide us with a concrete, irrefutable result. 
And the reason I wanted to talk about cyclamates is because first, like it's a cool story and we like cool stories that relate to nutrition history, but two, because it is a classic example of this one study phenomenon. And what I really want people listening to remember is that when you hear about a study in the media, whether it is from 1969 or today in 2023, before drawing any conclusions, you have to look at and dissect the actual research. And not because there isn't some amazing nutrition research being done, and there are amazing nutrition researchers out there, but simply because we have to look and think critically at the study itself and just ask ourselves like, how much it can really tell us and what it can't tell us. Yeah, there's kind of a guilty until proven innocent thing that's going on here, but it's very hard to prove something innocent because you'll do 20 years of studies that don't replicate those findings and still it's not enough, like the story's out. Exactly. And interestingly, cyclamate is actually used in other countries. In Europe, for example, they use cyclamate in food and beverages, but the U.S. has continued to ban its use ever since 1969, despite, as I just mentioned, the fact that many organizations have come out with statements that it's safe for human consumption. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. And so now, hopefully, what we've illustrated so far today is really the origin story of the health claim that diet soda causes cancer. But let's dig into the claim a bit more. And so now we're kind of going to move away from the history and storytelling part of the episode and really just move into talking about the research and the science. So let's get into it. Science time. Let's do it. So far, we've only talked about cyclamates, but there's quite a few other artificial sweeteners. And so let me just touch on them and mention them since we're going to be talking about them from here on out. So the sweeteners that probably most people are aware of, aspartame, that's what's found in the sweetener equal. Uh, saccharin, that's what's found in sweet and low. There's a class of artificial sweeteners that are called steviol glycosides. That's what's found in the sweetener stevia. And then there's sucralose. That's what's found in Splenda. So there's quite a few of these artificial sweeteners out there. And, you know, interestingly, aspartame is one of those artificial sweeteners that went through a very similar story arc as cyclamates. I think aspartame is often the one that people ask me, like, does aspartame cause cancer? And exact same story. I mean, really, there was one study that came out in 2007. It was released by a group of Italian scientists. And suggested that rats fed, you know, high levels of aspartame, had higher rates of blood cancer. But, you know, this was another study that was never replicated again. So the panic around aspartame was there and is now kind of in the, you know, nutrition narrative out there also came from one study that's never been reproduced. Yeah, that's interesting. I understand the concern that people have when they get these individual studies that may fall into this one study phenomenon. It can't be reproduced. But, you know, when we tell the story of like a grad student smoking a cigarette that like got laced with a chemical that happened to be sweet, it does kind of have this nefarious backstory to it. So it's going to take a lot to prove that these things are safe for people to feel really comfortable and relaxed consuming them. So I'm excited to hear more about how, you know, all these sweeteners kind of stood up to the the rigors of science over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when it comes to the claim that non-nutritive or artificial sweeteners like those found in diet soda cause cancer. You know, I want to go to like our largest cancer organizations out there and see what they have to say. I mean, they are really 
dedicated to research uh, around cancer and curing cancer. And so the overall consensus from the U.S. National Cancer Institute and the Cancer Research UK, which is just like the European equivalent, they both say that the best evidence and the best studies show that artificial sweeteners, like all those that I listed earlier, do not increase the risk of developing cancer. And the consensus seems to be, and and this is a quote from the Cancer Research UK, is that, quote, your overall diet, what you eat day to day, is more important than individual ingredients or individual foods for reducing your cancer risk. And they also point out that things like smoking or excess UV exposure or high alcohol consumption are all well-established risk factors for developing cancer. And so producing like those behaviors are much more important than cutting out individual ingredients from foods. Yeah, and that's kind of well-balanced advice that makes a lot of sense. I I think it doesn't really cut through the anxiety people have, though. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I feel like people hear that and they go, yeah, but what if I go through a phase where I want to drink 10 Diet Cokes a day? What (laughs) Does that change the, the calculus here? Is that okay? Is it okay for me to drink these things? Can we go through more of these specific health claims that are often made around diet soda beyond cancer? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of other claims around diet soda consumption and health. I think that one of the ones we often hear is that uh, high diet soda intake increases risk for development of diabetes or cardiovascular disease. I think there's a claim out there that drinking diet soda causes Alzheimer's or impacts cognitive functioning somehow. The other big one that I've been hearing lately is that diet soda artificial sweeteners disrupt the gut microbiome. This one's kind of a relatively new claim since we're kind of just beginning to learn and talk about the gut microbiome more. I'm just going to highlight some of the, again, quote unquote, best quality evidence we have in these areas or around these claims. And then from there, I'm going to talk about some real problems with these studies. Gotcha. So when you say best quality evidence, you're about to say some of the research that people would point to when they say, look, there is an association between diet soda consumption and developing cardiovascular disease risk, for example, or Alzheimer's. So you're going to kind of give us the 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 major players in the argument that you should be worried about diet soda. Yeah, I mean, kind of spoiler alert, I'm going to give you some of the studies that are often cited in relation to these risks, and then I'm going to just debunk it and destroy it. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Okay, sweet. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So um, when it comes to risk of development of cardiovascular disease or stroke, there was a 2016 study by Narain et al. that linked frequent diet soda consumption to a slight increased risk of stroke. This study is often cited because it's a pooled analysis of seven large studies. So they were looking at 300,000 participants. You know, anytime we have a larger group of people and we're looking at a larger group of people in research, this tends to be a positive thing because the more people we're studying, the more we can kind of extrapolate from that. There there was also like a 2019 study by Masavar Rahimi et al. that followed around 82,000 women and found that higher diet beverage consumption, which they defined as two or more diet beverages a day, seemed to increase risk of stroke or development of cardiovascular disease. And then in 2017, there was a study by Matthew Pace et al. This was the study that really kind of started the panic that 
drinking diet soda causes Alzheimer's or results in impaired cognitive function because the media definitely got a hold of this study. Um, and it's unfortunate because it's a very small study, but this study is often referenced in relation to increased risk of developing Alzheimer's in relation to diet soda consumption. Diet soda as an independent risk factor for developing diabetes is a tricky one. And quite honestly, I, I didn't find any ultra compelling evidence to suggest this. The last claim is the connection between the gut microbiome and artificial sweeteners or diet sodas. And when it comes to that topic, you know, here's my position statement. We've known about the gut microbiome for a long time but it's really only began being studied more in earnest over the last like 15 years or so. And so we are really at the beginning, beginning stages of understanding the complex interaction between these like 100 trillion microbial cells. And, you know, I know I'm getting a little bit ranty here, but I just feel like wellness and diet culture is totally capitalizing on the idea of the microbiome by being like, oh, you need to like, change your gut or balance your gut and you should have these foods or not have these foods or, you know, whatever nonsense. And the truth is, I think it'll be decades before we really have a clearer understanding of the microbiome. And so I'm not even going to comment about the studies that have been done in relation to diet soda and the microbiome because one, I don't think they're compelling at all. And two, because there's just not enough understanding or data to make any kind of concrete statement around it. I support that. So we're kind of scratching gut microbiome worries off the list. We're scratching uh, diabetes off the list just because there's just frankly not enough evidence that's compelling either way. So we're not worried about that. Um, but we still have cardiovascular disease. We have um, you know associated conditions like stroke. We have Alzheimer's. Those are still on the list. We scratched cancer off earlier, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. We checked that off. And so, yeah, kind of, kind of on the table still, we have cardiovascular disease, stroke. And so, you know, let me, can I start destroying now? Can I do yes. the study destroying? Okay. Go for it. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the things that all of the studies that I just mentioned have in common is that they're all observational studies. And an observational study is essentially when we are just following people over time and the researchers are observing the study participants and, and they're trying to discern patterns to see if there's like an association between, for example, diet soda intake and the development of cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And we have talked about this a little bit in other episodes, but there are some very real problems with nutrition research and also some very real problems with observational studies. And so let's talk about these problems because these problems contribute heavily to how much we can and cannot conclude from the data. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Okay, so first thing to say about observational studies is that just because there's an association does not mean there's a one-to-one -one link. Correlation doesn't equal causation. The only type of study design where we can determine causation is a randomized controlled trial, which are very hard to do in the world of nutrition because we kind of can't very often just force a group of people to kind of upend their lives for six months or a year and participate in these pretty extensive studies. And so we really can never determine causation from an observational study. So the next thing to say about observational studies is that human behavior is very complex. We have lots and lots of variables that are all interacting at one time. Things like genetics and our age and our ethnicity and our stress level and our smoking status, et cetera, et cetera. And because of this, it's 
not always possible to say for sure why certain patterns occur in observational studies. Yeah, this is the problem with conflating correlation with causation is there's all these confounding variables and these populations aren't uniform in how they interact with other foods or how they move their body or whether they smoke or whether they don't smoke or what their sex is or whether they have other you know health conditions like diabetes. So this leads to situations where you have almost like a reverse causation concern where it's like maybe the correlation is kind of flipped and people are choosing diet soda because they have diabetes or because they um, eat a certain way. And so it's very hard to pull actual findings out of this other than just basic associations. Exactly. And as a healthcare provider, you know, when I look at all of the unique differences between uh, people who have higher intakes of artificial sweeteners versus those that have lower. I mean, the differences are so complex that it's really hard to say anything concrete. Um, I am super glad that you mentioned reverse causation. I want to play a clip from Dr. Aaron Carroll, um, who hosts a healthcare series that's called Healthcare Triage on YouTube. And uh, Dr. Aaron Carroll is also the chief health officer at the Indiana School of Medicine. And he is going to also talk about the challenges of observational studies. So let's go ahead and play that. We still don't understand the limitations of observational studies. No matter how many times we've stressed the difference between correlation and causation, people still look at increased risk and determine that the risk is causing the bad outcome. For reporting on hundreds of thousands of people, observational studies are generally the only realistic option. With very few exceptions, they can tell us only if two things are related, not whether one's to blame for the other, as opposed, of course, to randomized controlled trials. With respect to diet soda, it's plausible that the people who tend to drink them also tend to be worried about their weight or health. It could be a recent heart attack or other health setback that's causing the consumption rather than the other way around. But you shouldn't assume that diet sodas cause better health either. It could be that more health conscious people avoid added sugars. Many of these new observational studies add little to our understanding. At some point, a study with 200,000 participants isn't better than one with 100,000 participants because almost all have limitations, often the same ones that we can't fix. I think that's such a great summary. I don't know what you think about that, but like what a great summary of the challenges of observational studies particularly. Yeah, I think he really succinctly made the point that we're kind of getting at here, which is that correlation isn't causation. And that is important. We really have to take that to heart. It's not just something we're saying to make people feel better. It is fundamental to interpreting these studies. We need to take these studies with not a grain of salt, but like an entire box of Morton sea salt, because this (laughs) is not something to necessarily change your behavior around. It's just like a cursory finding that should be investigated further. Absolutely. And we also have to talk briefly about the way these studies are reported and the difference between relative risk and absolute risk. And so please, please stay with me as I get a little bit like math and sciencey right now. But I, I just want to talk about the difference between absolute and relative risk. And so, you know, absolute risk is a measure of the risk of a certain event happening in cancer research, for example. Absolute risk is the likelihood that a person who is free of cancer will develop cancer at any age over a period of time. 
relative risk is the probability of an event occurring in one group compared to the other. And so let's hear Dr. Aaron Carroll's view on relative and absolute risk. Moreover, too many reports still focus only on the relative risk and not on the absolute risk. If a risk increases by 10%, for example, that sounds bad. But if the baseline risk is 0.1%, that 10% increase winds up moving the baseline to only 0.11%. It'd probably be a public service if we stop repeating a lot of this research and stop reporting on it breathlessly. If that's impossible, the best people can do is stop paying attention so much. So I think that Dr. Carroll explained this very well again. And what I really want people to keep in mind is that if you read a media headline that says something like, diet soda increases your risk of cancer by 20%, it's super important to realize that the media loves reporting in relative risk because it's much more attention grabbing than absolute risk. But the truth is that these two things are very, very different. Let me just like give a very quick example. So for example, if a study finds that there is a 13% relative risk increase of developing any type of cancer as a result of drinking more diet soda, that may only translate into like two or three more cases of any type of cancer per 10,000 people. So very, very big difference in those numbers. Yeah, that that's a that's a really important point. I'm, I I hope people are still sticking with us through this little like statistical uh, section of the show because there's actually a lot of peace to be found on the other end of the statistics here. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think again, for people to be aware of the problems with nutrition research, the problems with observational studies, the difference between absolute and relative risk. Like again, I, I know these things are kind of like super math and super sciency and and like maybe a little bit dry, but like understanding these things will hopefully make people feel so much better about like just having your Diet Coke when you want it. Because again, um, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of high quality evidence that supports that there are any super consequential health impacts of consuming artificial sweeteners. And I think that leads us to hot takes. Can we do hot takes? Yes, let's do it. Okay, hot take number one. So I think it's super important to say that artificial sweeteners are extensively studied before they are added to foods. So gone are the pre-1958 food additive amendment days where additives weren't studied much, if at all, before being added to foods. Sucralose, for example, was studied for 20 years before getting FDA approval. So there are definitely safety processes in place before these things are added to food and beverages. And of course, we can never know 100%. But our understanding, at least in terms of what we understand right now, is that non-nutritive sweeteners seem to be pretty safe. So that's hot take number one. Love it. Hot take number two, observational studies are very imperfect. And it's not that they don't give us any information. It's just that they have flaws. And as we just talked about, the vast majority, if not all of the studies we have looking at diet soda intake and health are observational in nature. And so we have to interpret this information cautiously while simultaneously keeping in mind that relative risk and absolute risk are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Hot take number three, the most important hot take of them all is I am not going to stop having my diet Sprite with popcorn at the movie theater. 
Yeah, that's a very important one. I was hoping that wouldn't change. <laughs> okay, what about you? What are your hot takes? Yeah, I would say that it's very understandable to be freaked out by artificial sweeteners. There's so many of them and they all kind of change within different products over time and they've got these names that are hard to pronounce. So I totally get it. But yes, I want to agree with you that these things appear to be pretty well studied at this point and we have some governmental protection to keep us safe. And you can hedge your bets here And one way to do so is by enjoying a a variety of different beverages. And so, you know, I will say, maybe this is a separate hot take, but if you are drinking diet soda because you are worried about the sugar content of regular soda, give regular soda a try too. Maybe you'll enjoy both and you can kind of find times where each is appropriate for you based on what's going to bring you satisfaction. You know, try a root beer float with a classic (laughs) root beer. Give it a shot. But if you like the diet stuff, I'm not going to yuck your yum. You do you. That's awesome. I will say too that knowing a little bit about how this research is done, these nerdy scientists, they sit there all day looking for associations and they get so psyched when they find one and they publish it. And there's this whole bias about, you know, if you find a positive association, you publish it. And if you don't find any association, you don't publish it, right? So we see the stuff where they find an association and they're just working on their computers and their spreadsheets all day, finding these associations. And so... I will also say maybe separate hot take number three here for me is the media should be regulated about what they can share with us. Absolutely. And they really need to do the work of interpreting these relative risks and saying, okay, yeah, we said there's a 40% increased risk of Alzheimer's, for example. Here's what that actually means. It means like one in 20,000 people actually will develop Alzheimer's likely as a result of this intake. And- Still, they would need to give the caveats about problems with the methodology of the study, the limitations of the research. And so we need to have some scientific media literacy to, you know, hear things and not take it to heart and wait for additional studies to verify. And finally, I'll just say... I think that there's this panic about diet soda that's completely misaligned with the research that we have. There's like research showing, yeah, there's an association. It may be correlated with the stuff, may not be correlated with the stuff. And then people in their homes are like freaking out about the association between diet soda and cancer and Alzheimer's and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and their gut microbiome. And it's like none of the research adds up to this panic. We have some studies that show an association and a lot that do not. And that association when translated to absolute risk is like minuscule in like almost every situation, yet everyone feels in their heart that diet soda is going to kill them. And this is just so misaligned. I think that's one of the big takeaways. Yeah. And I think I know I mentioned this earlier, but I actually think it's really important to reiterate is the fact that like, you know, you and I are having this conversation based on our understanding of the research as it stands right now, right? This could Mm -hmm. always change. And I know that this is like horribly frustrating to people, especially when it comes to nutrition research, because I think people just like want a definitive answer. They want to be like Matt and Jen, tell me if it's okay to drink diet soda. And I think probably, you know, based on our conversation and our dissection of the research today, you and I would be like, yeah, I mean, you know, I think make a personal choice definitely for yourself, but you know, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of super compelling evidence that there are increased health risks in relation to artificial sweeteners. And I I just know that people want us to be able to say like, yep, 
now we know with black and white certainty for the rest of your life, you can drink these things and not worry. And we kind of do feel like that, at least in this moment, but research is always changing. Research is always evolving and it's a frustrating thing, but it's also important that we acknowledge that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do a lot of talk in this show about black and white thinking and the problems with it. And so let's not engage with it just to satisfy our own desire to chill people out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I wish we could do it. You know, I, I wish sometimes I could give people like more concrete answers. And for some things I feel like I can, Um, but you know, at least right now I will stick with my take that you know, you can consume artificial sweeteners or diet soda in a, in a balanced way when you're drinking lots of other things and eating lots of other things. And I think you don't really necessarily have to worry a ton. But like I said before, it's always going to be a personal choice. If you're ultra worried about these sweeteners, then, you know, just avoid them. That's fine too. Just don't beat yourself up all day, Jordan. It's all right, buddy. <laughs> hey, Jordan, it's okay, man. You're good to go. Yeah, yeah you do you, man. We love you anyway, no matter what soda you drink. <laughs> all right, I will. Um, I'll see you, Matt. All right, later, Jen. Nutrition for Mortals is a production of Oceanside Nutrition, a real-life nutrition counseling practice in beautiful Newburyport, Massachusetts, where we provide individual nutrition counseling both in-person and online via telehealth. Feel free to learn more about our practice at OceansideNutrition.com. If you want to send in a show idea, you can email us at nutritionformortals at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at nutritionformortals. If you're digging the show, tell a friend. Maybe give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.